You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. There's a lot happening in spaceflight in China. And admittedly, Chinese spaceflight doesn't always get the attention that it should in English-speaking media. Let's fix that a bit today, shall we? We have a number of stories and developments in China's commercial and national spaceflight programs to cover. So let's give China the spotlight at the top of our show today. Today is July 10th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. Space Pioneer gets a Series C funding round. Saudi Arabia and China are deepening ties. Bids are open soon for a Long March 6 ride. ISRO hands the keys to small launch over to the private sector. Big cuts in Australian space spending. And for today's conversation, I'm speaking with Laura Forsick, space consultant and career coach on navigating careers into and within aerospace. You don't want to miss it. Let's jump into today's Intel briefing, shall we? So yesterday, while many eyes here in the United States were perhaps on the latest launch by SpaceX, and yes, we'll cover that too later, meanwhile, over at the Juchuan Satellite Launch Center, a Long March 2C rocket launched an internet technology test satellite, according to the Xinhua News Agency. Details are pretty light on this launch, but an internet tech test satellite could very likely be related to Gowong, or China's SatNet, which is China's massive internet broadband constellation project. More on that in a bit. But as the Long March rocket series continues to be the backbone of launches in China, work on small and medium-lift vehicles via private companies in China continue apace as well. Space Pioneer of Beijing just announced its own Series C funding round, which will go towards the development of its medium-lift, two-stage reusable Tianlong-3, or Sky Dragon 3, which will use kerosene liquid oxygen propellant. The company says the design specifications for this rocket are especially primed to support satellite launches for Guowang, or China SatNet, as we mentioned earlier. And according to 2020 plans for that constellation, Guowang will have over 13,000 satellites. 
so one could imagine that the goal for the Tianlong 3 could be for it to become a satellite-launching workhorse like the Falcon 9 is for SpaceX. Now, Space Pioneer has been around since 2018 and has already raised over 400 million U.S. dollars over 11 funding rounds since its start. The company may already be familiar to you, as back in April, Space Pioneer successfully launched the Tianlong-2 liquid propellant rocket to orbital space, becoming the first Chinese company to do so. News from Beijing today that representatives from the Saudi Space Agency have met with government officials and business leaders in the Chinese space sector to develop ties between the two nations and to, quote, further the space exploration agenda. Representatives from Chinese commercial space companies, including Galaxy Space, iSpace, MinoSpace, Galactic Energy, and the China Electronics Technology Group Corporation, met with the Saudi Space Agency's delegation to discuss possible research and development partnership opportunities in the future. And a last bit of news on spaceflight in China today. If you are a commercial satellite company in China looking to hitch a ride on the next Long March rocket launch, get ready to bid for your spot. This Thursday, July 13th, CASC is opening up spots on a two-stage liquid-fueled Long March 6 rocket to commercial partners. But again, it's not a matter of simply paying a fee. It's an auction-based system. Costs for a Long March rideshare start at 80,000 yuan, or about 11,000 U.S. dollars per kilo. The Long March 6 can launch to low-Earth orbit or sun-synchronous orbits, and CASC expects this rideshare launch will occur by the end of this year. Okay, now let's shift our attention now to India's burgeoning space program. After working on its own SmallSat launch vehicle, or SSLV service, ISRO says it wants the private industry to have it, in its entirety. A senior official from ISRO said this, We will be transferring the small satellite launch vehicle completely to the private sector, not just the manufacturing, but full transfer. ISRO's SSLV can take up to 500 kilos to low-Earth orbit and 300 kilos to sun-synchronous, and it had a successful launch of several small sats this past February. Given the small payload sizes, the SSLV is meant to offer on-demand SmallSat and NanoSat launch services. There's no exact timeline available yet, but ISRO says the SSLV will be up for bid to the private sector soon. And we're all wishing the best for ISRO's third mission to the moon, the Chandrayaan-3 lunar landing mission, which is expected to launch no earlier than this Friday, July 14th. In the meantime, a little bit of follow-up on that— in an interview with CNBC, ISRO's agency chief, S. Somanath, is looking to the future and says India's fourth mission to the moon, which is expected around 2026, will likely be in partnership with Japan's JAXA to explore the lunar south pole. And now over to Australia. And just a little over a year after launching its own space command, the Australian government plans to cut $1.2 billion from its space budget significantly impacting a program that aimed to launch four satellites between 2028 and 2033. The decision, a reported budget repair move, has drawn severe criticism from the Space Industry Association of Australia. These cuts, although not from the defense budget, may affect defense capabilities due to the intertwined nature of space infrastructure. The association argues that in a rapidly advancing global space sector, this cut could threaten Australia's international reputation and ability to contribute to international efforts in the space domain. The Military Times has released their U.S. Service Members of the Year awards, including the U.S. Space Force Guardian of the Year for the very first time. 
Space Force Captain Victoria Garcia earned the title. In the face of Russia's assault on Ukraine, Captain Garcia spearheaded an operation to safeguard U.S. satellite networks in Europe. Her 54-member unit tracked 84,000 network events over 3,000 hours, using an electronic warfare system to ensure the security of the electromagnetic spectrum for U.S. operations. Bravo Zulu, Captain Garcia. And we mentioned it briefly in the first story of the show, but SpaceX has successfully launched its Falcon 9 rocket on a record-breaking 16th flight, testing the limits of rocket reusability. The first stage booster completed its mission, deploying 22 second-generation Starlink satellites before landing on a drone ship in the Atlantic. This particular booster has carried, previously, a range of missions, including the first astronaut transport on a Falcon 9. The original plan for the Falcon 9 first stage reuse was 10 missions, so 16 is a cool 160% of goal. Not too shabby. Way to give 160% Falcon 9. Reuters published an exclusive on the Ball Aerospace acquisition. Blackstone and Veritas Capital are reportedly vying against defense firms like BAE Systems, General Dynamics, and Textron to acquire the firm. The aerospace unit, representing 13% of Ball's 2022 net sales, offers hardware for aerospace and national defense applications and could be worth over $5 billion. Now, if Ball sells the aerospace unit for $5 billion or more, it could face a substantial tax bill exceeding $1 billion. Ball Corp. aims to offload its aerospace division to concentrate on its beverage packaging operations and reduce its current $10 billion debt load. The final bids for the unit are expected by the end of July. The potential sale comes amid increased regulatory scrutiny on defense sector deals, as seen when regulators blocked Lockheed Martin's attempted acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne earlier this year. And that wraps up our Intel briefing for today. Stay tuned for my interview with space career coach Lara Forsick. And hey, T-Minus crew, every Monday we produce a written intelligence roundup. It's called Signals in Space. And if you happen to miss any T-Minus episodes, and we understand if you do, this strategic intelligence product will get you up to speed in the fastest way possible. It's all signal, no noise. You can sign up for Signals in Space in our show notes or at space.n2k.com. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. With the new space economy taking off around the world, there's a lot of interest from folks who might not be in this industry who are trying to make a career shift. We often hear that there's space for everyone in the world of aerospace, but if you're trying to break in, that can often seem easier said than done. My guest today has helped many people navigate a career in space and has some great advice for anyone looking to make a career move. 
We help businesses and government entities and nonprofits to grow in space. There has been so much interest in space over the past several years, really spurred by both the advances in commercial space, and SpaceX has a lot to do with that, and also the government interest in going to the moon and um, doing things in cislunar and lunar space and commercial space stations. And there's just been this boom of activity and interest in space. And so we help companies that are both already in space to figure out how to grow into new markets. And then also companies that are not yet in space, whether they, well, actually most companies are, they just don't realize it. But whether they have this intention of knowing that they want to be in space or whether they never thought about it before, helping them figure out how they can take advantage of this boom in the space sector. I would love to hear more about what maybe these companies are are um, maybe hesitant about or what they are curious about, maybe the unknown unknown, so to speak, if they're thinking about more formally moving into space. What, what are you hearing? Companies don't really know where they belong because they don't know how much they already rely on space. And our modern infrastructure, everything we do in our modern society runs on space. People just don't realize that we take it for granted. And so it's helping people to understand where they already are using space and then where their current activities, whether that is, you know, in a sector that you don't necessarily think of being in space or related to space, or whether it is a sector that is tangential, where they can grow. Because there's so much room for growth in the space sector, depending on whether they want to branch out with what they're already doing or try something new. What areas are you personally or professionally interested in in the space sector? I mean, there are so many different avenues. What really intrigues you? Everything having to do with the emerging U.S. market, especially human spaceflight, because that's just my personal interest. I still want to be an astronaut as I did when I was a kid. And so for me, it's picturing how humanity is going to go forward in space. And this is not just government actors anymore. It's also commercial players. And and the combination between government and commercial, we're seeing more and more government agencies, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., use commercial uh, industry to accomplish their human spaceflight goals and and beyond that, uh, spaceflight goals in general. And so for me, it's like, how do we move human society outside of Earth's surface? And so um, thinking about commercial space stations and the way that we use them, my first full-time job was actually working on science on the International Space Station. And so understanding when we move out to many different types of commercial space stations, who are the users and what are they going to do? And then thinking beyond. I mean, when I was a kid, my goal was to be an astronaut to the moon. Like That was the thing I wanted to do, and it is the thing I still want to do. So it's understanding, you know, first off, these government astronauts that are going with Artemis, what are they going to do and how are they going to accomplish their goals? And then the future, thinking about lunar bases and gateway and other types of commercial space stations that might exist in other places that are not just LEO, like around the moon or in Cislunar or even Lagrange points. So the near term is how do you harness what's already happening and put yourself in it to maximize the types of impact that you can have on the plans that are already ongoing. And then the long term is thinking ahead to what those markets might be in the next decade or two. That's fascinating. And so that's the organizational point of view. Say you're a person who is looking to transition into the the space industry and they, they believe they have some transferable skills, but they're not sure. It's a kind of an intimidating market to break into, at least as as a as an outsider. It just seems that way to me. What what advice do you give people who are looking to 
figure their way in there. Yeah, thank you for asking. I've been doing space career coaching for the past six years. In fact, I'm the only space career coach that works with high-level professionals. And so a lot of the professionals like yourself that come from outside the space sector, they think there's a barrier. They think that they have to be at a certain level, like insider-outside perspective, when in fact, you and others have these skill sets that the space industry desperately needs. We are so insular in space. Traditionally, it has been a very isolated industry. And so we really need the fresh perspectives and skill sets that come from outside the space sector in order to grow and innovate and mature. And so you and others bring perspectives that the space industry uses to then grow. And so I tell people, don't think that you need to go back to school unless you truly want to, or that you don't belong, or that you need to undersell yourself. You actually are really, really valuable as you are right now. And I do offer space career coaching services if anyone wants to reach out and ask me how they belong in space. Yeah. What are um, common barriers that you are seeing people encounter or maybe, and then hopefully overcoming uh, in their job search? Quite often, it really is a mindset shift where people think that they are an outsider and therefore they think they need to go back to school or apply only to entry-level roles, or they think that they're not worthy, and and they self-reject. And that tends to be something that I need to work on with a lot of my clients is understanding where they're coming from and what value they give, and then helping them with that internal and external messaging so that they can explain to themselves and others what value they have in the space sector, what value they can bring to the table, and then making sure that they are taken seriously when they are applying for jobs or networking. That's so important. And uh, to me, I've been not in this world that long, but I've been noticing there's sometimes like a cultural not culture clash necessarily, but there's there's sort of a, a perception of folks who've been in the industry for a while, almost versus uh, those who are sort of on the newer side, maybe come from the traditional-ish tech world, and that sometimes people don't necessarily speak the same language, even though they have the same goal in mind. So it sounds like, if I'm understanding this correctly, some, some of it is a matter of that mindset shift of you can find a way, you do belong, but maybe you need to adopt a different language or figure out how to position yourself in a in a slightly different angle. Exactly. This is the same with individuals and it's the same with businesses or organizations where you have to speak a common language. And it's, you know, I'm not talking about English. I'm talking about being on the same page with what the goals are and what the results are that you want to have. And so for some people that might just be accomplishing something that's already been going on that you know you can do better. And for some others, it might be accomplishing something that's never been done before and making sure that you're all on the same page about how that is going to happen and what that might look like for the future. What are the differentiators that companies should be positioning themselves with in order to find that home in space, so to speak? Is there, I mean, if if I'm thinking of like a traditional software company that's trying to move to um, providing some sort of space-based solutions, are there maybe things from the tech set or that are seen as like a red flag in space? Or uh, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of those cultural indicators that might be misconstrued in, in the space world. A lot of times people don't know what they don't know. So it's asking around to potential customers what they are lacking, what they still need, and also understanding where the competitors are currently in terms of their technology, in terms of their market reach, and understanding where you fit. Where's your company's niche? Like, what is that specialty that you bring to the table? So to use your example with software, cybersecurity is a huge problem in space. It is becoming even larger. And most companies just are underprepared when it comes to cybersecurity solutions, whether that is on the ground, 
with receivers or um, data processing or up in space with their satellites that they launch. And that is an area where I think the tech sector really needs and has an opportunity to come into the space sector and say, we have these cybersecurity solutions, just as an example. Um, and you can benefit this. You can benefit from this because all these other companies on the ground terrestrially have been benefiting. And here's how you are going to suffer if you don't protect your data or protect your IP or whatever it happens to be. Is there any advice that you give, not just to companies, but also to individuals for maybe if they're looking to level up, for lack of a better term, or to to make that transition into a space role if they're coming from some other field? So I know you mentioned thinking about themselves and not self-selecting out. Is there anything else that, that you, you find noteworthy to tell people? Many individuals and companies, they are so into the weeds in what they do, which is fantastic. That's what we need for specialized services and, and products, but they don't necessarily understand the big picture. And so a lot of times they really need an outsider's perspective that knows the bigger picture of the industry or understands where the industry is going. And that's really where an expert outside source, whether that's my company, Astrolytical, or me personally with the Space Career Coaching, can help you to identify where you fit within the broader sector. So understanding where your expertise, where your specialized skill set has the most value and can make the most impact and get you the most customers if you're a company or you know, get you the most attention if you're an individual who's trying to get into the space sector. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Now, we started our show with some news from China's spaceflight program, and today we're also going to close out with some cool science courtesy of China's Zhurong Mars rover. Yes, Zhurong fell silent last year, and there's fading hope that it might be revived, but in the meantime, it collected some fantastic high-resolution imagery in 2021 and 2022 on the Red Planet that scientists are still pouring over. And a study just published in the journal Nature says Zhurong, with the help of the Tianwen-1 Mars orbiter, has solved a long-standing mystery about unique sand dunes found all over Mars. These puzzling sand dunes are specifically called transverse alien ridges, or TARS. No, not the robot from Interstellar. TARS, in this case, are dark, crescent-shaped ridges on the top of dune fields. But TARS appear to be at a different angle than the massive dunes that they sit upon— now, thanks to Zhurong, which was able to get a closer look at some TARS, Li Chunlai from the National Astronomical Observatories of the China Academy of Sciences, who led the team of researchers on the study, says they can now confirm that the change in the morphology and stratigraphy, in other words, the structure and chemical compositions of the dunes, was due to a change in the planet's rotational axis at the end of the last Martian ice age around 400,000 years ago, which then also changed the prevailing wind direction. This was long suspected to be the case, but getting up close and personal with these dunes was key to confirming the hypothesis there. Better understanding how climate changed across time on Mars will help us better understand how climates can evolve for planets in general across epochs. Thanks to Mars research, we no longer have a sample size of one for up-close planetary studies like this. And that's it for T-minus for July 10th, 2023. 
For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. T-minus. <laughs>